Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service was just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. The Garrison Project Podcast tells those stories, your stories, and builds connections across generations of veterans. The Garrison Project, veterans connecting with veterans through the power of storytelling. And now your host, Dan Ettinger, co-founder of the Garrison Project. All right, everybody, this is Dan Ettinger, the Garrison Project. This is the Garrison Project podcast. It will be episode 17. Great interview coming up with John Kilgo, a fellow I met maybe... 10 years ago, plus or minus, uh, we worked together for about three months, really impressed with uh, how he did business. Um, we were down in Miami at Southcom. I was on a individual augmentee, a three-month deal down there to support Southcom. He was stationed there. I uh, had a great time. Uh, really interesting. It was uh, right around the time that the uh, Haiti, I forget what, was it was, earthquake, Haiti earthquake or something like that was going on. So that's what the IA was about. But either way, I had, a, had some met some great people down there, John being one of them, a uh, Navy veteran, uh, doing some really interesting stuff, started his own company. So between his experience uh, as, a, as a civilian employee to the military and his own business now and his experience in the Navy, I think, uh, I think you'll get a lot out of the conversation. So that being said, just those couple of same notes I keep beating the drum about the rucksack, send in your resources, check out the website, send in your resources, the stuff that you've been successful with, uh, as a, as veteran service organizations or other things that are useful to you. I'll post them up on the rucksack that way other veterans can see those and also veterans community center, join up, make a profile. Uh, that's all in preparation for what we'll do sometime here down the road with a uh, broader platform to, to share resources. Hopefully everyone will get, uh, get the idea behind that and get involved. And then finally, just keep, keep tuning in, uh, reach out. If you have some, some stories to tell, reach out to other people who may have stories to tell, connect them to me easy as could be. I think the, the interview format's going okay. Um, a little bit about you, a little bit about your military service, a couple of stories and what you're passionate about now. And that's that. I mean, that's what the, the garrison project's going to be about veterans connecting with veterans this power of storytelling and then seeing where those connections can take us. So stay tuned and enjoy the show for today. Episode 17, John Kilgo. Hey everybody, this is Dan Ettinger coming to you live from Cary, North Carolina, worldwide corporate headquarters of the Garrison Project. This is the Garrison Project podcast uh, coming up with, I think this will be when this is published, episode, it's like 17. So we're getting up there. I have a super special guest today, somebody that I don't think I talked to for possibly eight or nine years, John Kilgo coming to you live from Southern Florida. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Dan. Dan, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, yeah. Re- really interested in the in where the conversation goes. As I said, it's been a while, and we'll touch on uh, how we got connected. But uh, first and foremost, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? I already said you're in Southern Florida, so hobbies. We'll get into your this. This might be cool because we're going to talk quite a bit about what we might call your side hustle, but maybe that's kind of the longer term plan. But you can tell us about where you're at in your career right now, family, hobbies, that kind of thing. What uh, what, do you, what do you do in your personal life? Okay, Ray, I got you. Um, so I live actually in Big Pine Key, Florida, uh, in the Florida Keys. We were kind of, if you're thinking about Irma, we were kind of just east of the Irma path when that happened last year. Um, so I, I live in Big Pine Key, which for those familiar with the Keys is at mile marker 30. Um, I actually work in Key West, Florida. I'm a federal civilian, and I, uh, I work at a place called Joint Interagency Task Force South. We uh, target... Um, we're an interagency task force made up of about 600 people and we have all the law enforcement and all the military folks there. And we target illicit trafficking of cocaine predominantly into the United States. Um, I'm married and uh, have a set of eight and a half year old twins, which take up a lot of the non-work time, <laughs> which is imagine. cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So twins kind of in my family, kind of not in my family, but, uh, that's a question we always get of how do you do it? And the answer we always give is we don't know. That's all we've ever had is twins. So <laughs> it, it kind of makes us giggle when we see a family that's struggling with one kid, which sometimes it can happen, which I totally get. But mm-hmm. then, then people see us with two and when either one of us is out by ourselves with them, we, they're like, Oh, you must have it so hard. And I'm like, well, you know, you, you make a schedule, you stick to it. Um, and that's what's kind of saved us. But uh, uh, work, I mean, other than work, we do a, my wife and I volunteer at this kid's school from time to time when we can. And uh, we both just try and keep ourselves sane and in shape and don't go off the deep end with things. But uh, that's, but we've been down here for about, I got down here in 2011. So coming up on, it'll be in October, it'll be eight years now I've been down here. So it's what, a very interesting place to live and work. <laughs> but what sort sports. of, what sort of stuff are your daughters into? Are you a sports family or what do they do? Uh, yeah. So I have a boy and a girl um, mm-hmm. and uh, our sons and he's played soccer for a couple seasons. The storm kind of really goofed up the, the youth yeah, soccer man. situation down here. I mean, it exists in marathon or in Key West, but both of those are half an hour to 45 minute drive each way for, yep. you know, for practices and games and stuff gets tough. Um, our daughter's into dance. Uh, so she's been taking some dance classes and they're in third grade now, so we're we're working through, you know, being a set of twins. They're not exactly the same educationally. We've got one kid that just blows it out of the water and too smart for their own good sometimes. And then we've got one kid that we have to work with and struggle. You know, it's it's, it's a more uphill slog. And uh, so, you know, that's it. I I guess I had this a little bit of a preconceived notion that they'd be a little bit more similar than they are, but they're very different. <laughs> In terms of uh, personality and yeah, they're you, both uh, very capable. Did kids, you lodge but, a Did you lodge a formal complaint that they're not more similar? <laughs> uh, no, they, I mean, the whole the whole way they came about being born was just very odd. We had gone to a a the, the, they're born on December thirtieth, so we went to a doctor's visit that morning. My wife and I are both dressed to go to work. They were supposed to be born in February. This is in mm-hmm. Fort Lauderdale, and. Uh, we get to the doctor's office and she had had a, a pretty normal pregnancy up till that point. And they, they said they took her blood pressure and they're like, Oh, it's a little high. Um, okay. But we'll, we'll check it again later. And 
if it's if it if it's less, then you're good. Then they right. did the ultrasound and they're like, well, wait, one kid's five pounds three ounces, and the other kid's three pounds five ounces. Holy cow! So that's not good. And then they did her blood pressure again, and that wasn't any better. So they're like, okay, we're going to send you to the hospital for monitoring. Monitoring's the key word here. Yeah. Well, so she got, we both had our own cars. So she gets there before I do. I park, get upstairs. She's already got a gown on and an IV in her arm. And, and the doctor walks in and goes, oh, you guys ready to have kids today? Good Lord. And we're like, whoa, whoa. We, you said monitoring. And uh, they're like, no, 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 no. Well, okay, well, does she have to have the kids today? No, no. Can she go home? No. Okay. Is there any medical reason we need to do this today? No, no, not, not, not really. What in the oh, world? Okay. So then like, it was like, can we have five minutes to talk? So the doctor leaves the room. We made the decision. Now it's like one o'clock noon. Yeah. No, neither of us have eaten. And so she can't. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna go downstairs and have a hot dog and make some phone calls. <laughs> and uh, so over like a hospital hot dog and a Coke, I'm calling my parents, her parents, you know, my office to say, Hey, listen, I'm not coming in yep. and I'm going to be a father in about two hours. So anyway, but they both went to the NICU and then they came home later and they're fine. But it just was, you know, having, I mean, I, you know, having been diagnosed with cancer, gone through chemo before all this, I mean, mine was very stock. It was yeah, very yeah. like, Hey, you have this disease. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to do this. It was like, you got a check sheet from the doctor. And it was just like, you're doing this. I'm like, okay, thanks. You know, thank you. But in this case, we're having kids. And it was just like, eh, if you want to, maybe could. It was highly recommended we do this today, but not required. That kind of thing. It's very but yeah, no, so, yeah. And it's weird, too, in the Keys here, too, because every service except for the Army treats this as an overseas tour. <laughs> so okay. so they actually put families through. Well, because there's so, there's so little stuff here yeah. that we had a family... We had a family friend that um, had a really tough pregnancy and then they were going to have another kid. And basically they went to the doctors down here in the Keys and they were like, well, if you get pregnant again, we can't treat you here. You're going to have to go to Miami for every checkup yeah. because we just don't have the facilities if you have another pregnancy like the one you had before. Yeah. So, I mean, and we had an army officer who was with us here that his wife had a lot of, she was an except what they call classified as an exceptional family member. And mm -hmm you know, there was a lot of drama behind that, you know, a lot of trips to Miami for him and her. And, you know, the Navy just doesn't do that here. They look at it as an overseas tour, which I think is interesting. So, That's crazy. Um, yeah. I've made a, I made a couple trips down that way. Uh, the first couple of them, by the way, because I was stationed at the same place you were there at Southcom. Uh, so made the trip down. Uh, Key West is interesting. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Have you been out to what's the, uh, Oh man, the the dry tortugas. Have you made the trip out there? Uh, yes, but not since. So when I was in graduate school, I taught a my assistantship was um, in a Florida State runs this place called the I guess they still have it maybe called the Academic Diving Program, where they teach uh, they teach scientists who want to learn something about the underwater environment, and then they'll teach them like cave diving or mixed gas diving. And uh, I taught I was a graduate assistant in their program for two years, and so one year we wrote a research proposal and we got a, a gig on the uh, a, a trip on this research boat and so we spent a week out in the dry tortugas yeah. and we put half of our students on the island to camp at night because we maxed out more than what the boat could handle and then we anchored off and so for about seven days we were at fort jefferson so very cool it's it's and my wife actually just finished a, a, a contract gig doing some work out there as well 
uh, doing Ooh. some pest <laughs> management stuff for the park service. So that's that a pretty cool gig. And it's like 70 bucks as I remember for the ferry ride out there, two and a half hours out, two and a half hours back. Um, yeah, really, no, it's, really it's, cool it's, I've had some friends do it that, I had friends do the same ferry. The Yankee, I think it's a Yankee Clipper, I think it is. Yeah, um, yeah like And they had a great time. And you got showers on board. They had food. Yeah. You can go snorkel and see the island. And yeah, when we were there that week in grad school, a woman fell off of the moat, fell off of the third story of the <laughs> of the of the of the, of the fort and landed yeah. in the moat. And they had to medevac her out. <laughs> well, you know, there's no there weren't rails, so it's like one the one place in America without safety gear. Yeah. Um, yeah. That so. But no, it's, it's a very beautiful place. If you like the water and you like the water sports, diving, fishing, you know, it's it's amazing. I did so. the, uh, I, I snorkeled most of the perimeter and and the main thing I remember was it was Barracuda Mania. They were just everywhere. Um, very- yeah, it, and the other nitnoid fact about that area too is that you can't lobster in there and I'm giving lobsters a lot of credit, but it's like <laughs> lobsters know, know the boundary lines because there's just monster lobsters in Fort Jefferson National Park. And then yeah. literally, quite literally, you go 10 feet on the good side of the line where you can take lobsters and every one is tiny and they're all like, you, you can't keep them. <laughs> they're and there used to be, yeah, there used to be this gigantic uh, grouper. I don't know if it was a grouper or a jewfish or what, whatever it was, but it used to live under the big boat dock mm-hmm. at Fort Jefferson. It's like a 300 pound Goliath grouper type fish. And people didn't tell me about it. They knew. And they were like, hey, go snorkel over there. And I come around the corner <laughs> and this thing opens its mouth and and it, it could have swallowed me and I, <laughs> I, or I felt like anyway, I was like, okay, this is your house. I'm going to back away. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, really cool stuff. So the last, last part before we get into a little bit about your military career, uh, brand new addition to my interview script, tell us something weird, bizarre, interesting, whatever the case may be about yourself that you think no one would ever guess about you, but also something that won't get you in trouble at work. Ready to go. Oh, okay. That was it. <laughs> I've got, I've got a stock one for that kind of, um, so there's four of us that I know of in the United States Navy, one guy in the active duty, three of us in the reserves now that we're all in the, uh, in a, in a flying circus. Um, (laughs) so, uh, a little bit of history there, uh, Florida state university since 1947 has had a circus. Um, we don't have animals. We don't have clowns anymore, but it has a big top. It, um, it's been around. So when the university went co-educational, there was a guy named Jack Haskins who came in and wanted a activity that men and women can do together. And being the forties, it was meant to be a wholesome activity. Um, but, uh, he was, uh, he had been in a circus before. And so he and Ringling spent their summers in Sarasota. So he, he did a deal with Ringling. He got poles and a tent from them and, and then we, the program has been around since it's entirely self-funded. The university does, it doesn't fund it. Um, so we generate our own cash, but, uh, I did juggling teeterboard act on roller skates, rode the oh bike for five and, uh, and did an act called quartet, which you three guys, it's kind of like a cheerleading, almost kind of, I would call it that for the layman who's never seen it, but uh-huh. it, two guys swing a girl around and there's a third guy who they throw the girl to and he catches her <laughs> most times. Um, so now there's one guy who's a Navy command. He just put on commander. Well, he put on commander a bit ago. He's a supply corps officer on active duty. And then there's one P3 NFO and there's one, uh, me talk officer. Yep. So yep. the, uh, the me talk officer went first 
into OC. We all and we all went through OCS together as well. Well, did there, there was this about four year period where we all were in OCS one yeah. after the other. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, that's a fact that usually shows up on command <laughs> list of like, hey, I bet you didn't know this about the staff. You know. So, so, um, so right now you are in the lead with the coolest answer to the question. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you are did the a, first. Did about three hundred shows with them in the Bahamas, across the southeast. Um, yeah, so I mean, I can juggle and see. But see, that was it was interesting because like when I got to the Navy, you know, people a thought I was prior enlisted because I joined late. Yep. I joined the Navy at twenty seven, but also too like. I, I threw people for a big loop because in the circus, you learn how to tie bowlins and figure eights yeah. and you learn how to splice. We never splice metal and I'm not going to confuse rope and wire I mean rope and, okay. you know, whatever, but <laughs> nylon, I'm just, I'm going to say rope. And I mean, you know what I mean? I'm not going to yeah. get yeah. line and rope into that whole bit, but I'm with you. you know, I knew how to splice. I knew how to tie knot. I knew basic rigging. So, like chiefs would be like, Oh yeah, sir. I'm like, Hey, no, this is how you do this. And they're like, Oh, Whoa, wait, how do you know that? <laughs> like I was very, I was an anachronism to certain people of like, and all three, all four of us have those same skills. Like we all can tie the knots. We all understand rigging. We all, but we'd also had that life and death thing too. Yeah. Like we had watched people fall out of equipment and hurt themselves. Uh, so all of us had had that kind of like, Let's think around a corner here before we just run headlong into something. So anyway, but yeah, that's a, that's my answer to that one. So, so. good stuff. Uh, I think you nailed that. <laughs> we'll move on now. Um, okay. The, uh, the first part of the show here is uh, a quick overview of, <clears throat> pardon me, is uh, uh, where you were at when you joined the military, how you got into the military and an overview of your career, because the next piece is going to be some stories from your time in the military. Um, so set us up with overview, how you, how you got in, what you did while you were in and, uh, and you're in the reserves now. So maybe then just a quick transition into how you got into the reserves and eventually we'll talk okay. about what you're, what you're doing now. Go ahead. Gotcha. So uh, I late 1990s comes around. If you put yourself in that mindset, late 1990s um, I was, in graduate school and I had about two years left and I knew that the Navy had a two year ROTC option. So I pick up the phone and I went to, I went to school at Florida state. Like I said earlier, I called the ROTC program and I, I said, Hey, I, I'm a graduate student. Um, I have two years left. I'd like to do your two year option. And how do I sign up for that? And right. the officer I was talking to basically said, well, you know, we don't accept graduate students. At, maybe this was a local decision or I don't know if that was, big Navy ROTC's position, but I was like, okay, fine. Thanks. So I was like, okay, went on with graduate school. I was working at a 24 hour mom and pop photocopy place. And one of the guys I worked with was a Marine reservist, a tank mechanic. And he knew the, through his wife's relationship with another fellow student at law school, he knew the officer recruiter in town. And he knew I was struggling with what was I going to be when I grew up type questions. And, uh, so he's like, well, why don't you go talk to uh, Lieutenant Buck over at the uh, recruiting office and just see what she can, you know, see what she, maybe what she has to offer. So I went over and met with Lieutenant Buck and, and uh, she told me about OCS and I was like, okay, fine, sure. I was working for the park service at the time as an archaeologist, as an archaeological technician. And that was a temporary gig. And I was sending out resumes to be an archaeologist and it, 
I, I, I think at one point I had 60 resumes out with different federal people <laughs> or cultural resource management people. It might've been, might've been 50 or 60. It was a big number, you know, for a kid coming out of school. And I think I got like five letters of back saying, no, thanks. And then I got, nobody else responded. So I kind of had hit a moment where I was like, well, I need to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, you know, the, the Navy said, Hey, we'll take you to OCS. And afterwards you can, if you survive, we'll send you to officer, you know, to surface warfare school. And so I showed up to officer candidate school on Halloween day of 1999 and still in and, Pensacola. Uh, had, yeah, I was in Pensacola at the time. And yeah. so I, on advice from the recruiter, she's like, go in the winter, don't go in yeah. the summer. Uh, it's brutal. <laughs> and, uh, so showed up in October and wound up getting rolled back at the medical phase oh, because geez. well, it turns out, I guess my civilian, I had, I had horrible vision. I was like 2,400 bad astigmatism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I go to the, you know, your first couple of days of in processing at OCS, you get all the medical stuff done. And I'm at the, I, the optical portion of the in processing and, the the lady doing my uh the commander doing my optical exam was like hand me your civilian glasses and she she's like the pres- the prescription for the civilian glasses was over what i needed effectively like they did give me too powerful of a prescription then she asked me she's like well does anybody in your family have any eye problems and i was like well my parents my dad has a bad astigmatism my parents both wear glasses and at that point my granddad had just my father's dad had just been diagnosed with macular degeneration. Yeah. And I was like, well, grand, my, my grandfather has macular de- degeneration. And she's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, so I got pulled out of my class. Zooks. And the worst and thing put ever. GT, put in GTX. The, yeah. the, I got put in GTX twice, actually, at OCS. First time was for that. And then um, basically I had to wait. A week, I got reevaluated, but it turns out my three roommates all got put in GTX for different reasons. So we all went as a room <laughs> in yeah. a GTX together, and we learned all the shortcuts from the kids that had been there for a while. Then we wound up classing back up, stayed in class up until the personnel inspection day, and we had a failure. We were on the bubble because basically everybody in my room failed the fourth week military training test. We all repass on the new inspection, but oh. we're, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a grind. And so yeah. we're on the bubble and during the, during the personnel inspection, the chief had some issues with my salute and well, a couple of other things and pre-inspection showed none of those problems, but he had an issue with it. Rules are rules. So I got rolled back a week and then I finished up the class with, at that point we had, didn't have the two week break between classes. We had one class a week behind us, so I just rolled into their class, and and it was not a big not a big setback. But eventually, I graduated though on the tenth of March, two thousand, and uh, I was at the time the Navy was running a a pilot program for because they had kids failing surface warfare school, so they did a program where they had half the kids go out of commissioning right to school, and then they sent half of us to ships. And I was part of the crowd that of what I call the idiots at, at sea program where we went to ships. And so I got a frigate out of Mayport, but the frigate was on deployment. So I had to wait for them to get themselves sorted out to accept me. And 
I went to do the hometown recruiting project, the officer's hometown recruiting yeah. project. So I went back to Tallahassee and tried to find other kids to go to OCS. So that's kind of how I got in to the Navy. And I have a family. My family had, my dad and my granddad had both been in the Air well, Army Air Corps and Air Force. So and so since World War II, Korea, Vietnam onward. The only one we, we missed was the Gulf of Desert Storm, but, you know, done, we've done everything else since then. So, but that's kind of how I got in. Okay. And uh, so you're a surface warfare officer. Uh, how many ships? Um, I, had to, I had the honor of decommissioning two frigates on my first tour and uh-huh. selling both to the government of Turkey and home port <laughs> shifting one of them from um, Norfolk to Mayport. Yep. And so basically we went on deployment did a NATO deployment. We came back in December, right before Christmas. And during stand down, we heard a post deployment stand down. We heard that there's all these guys going to come from the Navy sales office and look at the ship in January. And then we kind of learned that there was a ship in Norfolk that they were going to sell to the Turks, but the ship had been on the decommissioned list or the decommissioning list for several months. So the maintenance wasn't done. It was just in disrepair. And the Turkish visitors were kind of unimpressed with the quality of goods that the Navy was going to sell. So they said, no, they were going to pull out of the deal. And then the Navy basically under on thinking on their feet, basically said, Hey, listen, we got this one that just came back from deployment. It's great. <laughs> it's perfect. Yep. Why don't you come back in a, in a couple of weeks, they're on leave and you can look at that one. So these guys came to Mayport, looked at our ship and they're like, we'll buy this one. Right. So in February, we took our ship up to Norfolk, went pierce that went out outboard of the ship that we were going to take over. We swapped hulls, UX gear decommissioned. And then the people that stayed behind the minimal crew that stayed behind in Norfolk decommissioned our ship. The Turks bought it. Then we took the one out of Norfolk and drove it back to Mayport and spent the next year fixing it up. And then we, that one was decommissioned and sold to the Turks as well. So uh, that was my first tour. I, and I went to school to be the anti-submarine warfare officer, but I came back and became the communications officer after my time at division officer school. So that worked out well. Um, that was a good Navy surface warfare switcheroo. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, and then from there I went to mine warfare training school in corporate in Ingleside, Texas, and was, became the ops boss of MCM eight, the scout home ported in Ingleside, Texas, but they were on deployment as well. So I had to fly. We met the ship in Italy and we did the last, last, last part of the deployment there. But minesweepers are for those in your audience that familiar with them, really not very fast. And, uh, so we, it took us 30, it took us 28 days to make it from Rota, Spain to Nassau, Bahamas. It took us another two days to make it from Nassau to Key West. And then it took us four days to make it from Key West to Texas. So it took us 34 days to make it home from deployment. Um, at this point, I'm really not a big fan of uh, ravioli in the can <laughs> or uh, um, because we ran out of fresh fruits and vegetables. And we had to get gas every third day, by the way, from an oiler. Does that and like six knots? What was the cruising speed? And, six well, eight to 10 was 10 <laughs> with the Gulfstream. Um, but awful. you know, you're talking about, you know, non-magnetic, uh, diesel engines that are, yeah. it, it, what I would say was it has the handling of a Ferrari with the speed of a VW bug. 
Um, <laughs> it's, it just doesn't have the pickup. It doesn't have the, I mean, you contrast that with the, the NATO deployment we did on the frigate. We did, we went from uh, Mayport, Florida, so Jacksonville to Den Helder, Netherlands, a fix just outside of Amsterdam. We did that trip in seven days. Yep. So, you know, just a great con- contrast, the great circle tracks of a frigate versus a minesweeper. So, but, uh, but no, so, I mean, I, you know, I've had, I got, I got a chance to get a glimpse of, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but I got a chance to get a glimpse of what the department head life was going to be like yeah. as the ops boss on the, on the minesweeper of what my future was going to hold. And it really kind of showed me, it was like, eh, I'm not sure this is exactly for me, you know, in the long term. It just, it, it, it became adult strength babysitting to a, to a certain degree of you finding yourself fielding answers and questions to, to, to things that you're just like, why am I even being asked this question mm-hmm. at, at, at a certain point? You know, it's like ops. Why did Seaman Timmy hit his wife? I don't know. I wasn't home with him. He got training not to hit his wife. You know, why is that my problem? I, I can prove to you that he has been trained in these various things. Yeah. Uh, but but so, my favorite one though that I got was was I got pulled into the executive officer's cabin on the minesweeper, and he's just like, you know, John. He's like, why is a uh, petty officer so and so's credit card bill not paid? <laughs> I was like, I was like, sir, um, this is his government travel card. What we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, "Sir, he we sent him to school in San Diego for it was like an eight or six or eight week school. There was no availability at the queue. He had to get a hotel, and this is pre defense travel system being in existence. So manual travel claims. I was like, "Sir, he had it was a six to eight week, it was like a six week school. There was no availability at the queue. He had to get a hotel. He needed a car. I mean, the bill was like you know eight thousand, seven, eight thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and." And it just happened to fall at the time when bills were due. He submitted the claim the day he got back. And I wound up asking the XO, I was like, sir, do you have $8,000 laying around right now that you could pay that bill in cash? I mean, I don't know too many. You know, I mean, this guy's like an E4. I'm like, yeah. he, he doesn't have it. He did everything he should. Like, let's let the system work before you get mad at me for why this petty officer hasn't paid his bill yet. And can, can we be done now? <laughs> can yeah, this but conversation that was, be done? <laughs> that was the kind of thing that I, I was like, man, if this is the next eight, you know, 36 months of my life, I don't want to be that guy sitting in that chair, you know, because yeah. people always would tell me like, oh, John, stay in long enough. You can change the culture of the Navy. I'm like, yeah, I'm not so right. sure. <laughs> I think this right. is a big machine. It's a big beast. That's going to, it's, it's going to be what it's going to be. And yeah. I think people it's, can change it, but I think that's, that's a glacial pace of change. It's not a fast moving train to change. So, so, so you hit the, you hit the end of your obligation, shifted over to reserves and uh, just real high level. Well, actually, what's been your, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, actually I, I, uh, I took my shore tour gig. So I, I went to Southcom before I met you. I went to oh, Southcom okay. as a, as a military guy. So I did three years in uniform there as my shore tour. Then I became, then I, I was looking at it and kind of the driving factor behind the reserves piece was, we had bought a house in Fort Lauderdale. They were, I was being, I was toying with getting out. I really wanted to go do federal law enforcement. That didn't play out. Uh, and my wife had found the, the job she loved. She found a job with the Seminole tribe of Florida that she just truly enjoyed and loved. And mm-hmm. we had a house and I was like, you know what? And my, my boss at the time was going to convert. He was getting promoted. So there was going to be a gap so they could, I, I competed for the gig and people honestly didn't want me to have the gig. There's some people that put my resume below others, but yeah. eventually I was offered the job that I, I got when I met you 
So, I mean, honestly, the, the bit of the reserves was, I was like, you know what, I can, I done almost 10 years of active duty. I can be a drilling reserve. So I've been a drilling reservist and an IRR reservist now. So I've seen a couple different sides of the reserves. So that was kind of where I, some of the calculus behind. So we want to start a family and, and yeah. at the, the, the surface warfare rotation model, it might be different now. I've been out of the game for a while, but you know, I was watching department heads do one tour in Jacksonville for 18 months, go to San Diego, do another tour for 18 months, and then come back to Norfolk for their, their shore ride. And the Navy doesn't have a summer PCS season like the Marine Corps and the Army does. So for people with kids in schools, I mean, I'm sure there's some give and take with the detailers, but sometimes there can't be. And you got kids that are getting pulled out of school mid-semester and stuff like that. And I just didn't want that for my family. Well, makes sense. Um, and so before we shift into what you're working on now for your own project and, and what you're passionate about, hit me with a couple of stories from that uh, those couple of ships. And you may have already touched on some. I, I can imagine it's a bit surreal, uh, basically being in dealer prep for the Turkish Navy, which, which you effectively were uh, there yeah. with your, your first ship. So, so let me hear a couple of stories oh, about your uh, service. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep them PG. Uh, so <laughs> the, I mean, there's some, so on the frigate side, I, like I said, I was, went to school to be the anti-submarine warfare guy, became the comms guy with no real training. But I inherited a great shop because I had, like, I think like at one point I had five or six E5s. I just finally, we finally got a chief again. I had a pretty good division. I mean, I had a bunch of guys. So the, the thing about the camaraderie of that ship was that there was just a lot of greatness in the way we were able to communicate and get stuff done. And I hadn't dealt with comms guys before. And if you, if your listeners haven't, you know, it's like when you go into port, you can, a lot of other people can just turn off their gear and walk away, but the comms guys don't get to drop their stuff until they come home from deployment. So the whole time you're gone, somebody has to be in the radio room doing radio stuff. So they worked really hard and then they, they played. So I'll give you two stories. One is a play story. One's a work story. Um, so the play story first is one of my radio guys was getting married and another guy went with him and the whole division basically went to the wedding or travel. Most of them that could did one guy gets okay. incredibly inebriated at the wedding and he didn't, he wasn't driving. So somebody else was driving him around and we'll leave the names out of it. Actually, he might actually listen to the podcast, but he uses <laughs> right. this as his stand up comedy routine now. So um, I feel okay in telling the story, but he gets incredibly inebriated and, the guy whose car he's in, he really loves his car. It's an old International Harvester Scout. So it's a kind of an iconic nice. looking truck. And so the guy with the truck's like, listen, if you get sick in my truck, you know, I'm not going to like it. And so the, the kid who was like, no, 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 I, I don't throw up. I don't throw up. I'm fine. And well, sure enough, two miles into the drive, he starts to make the throw up sound. And so right. the guy driving rolls down the window and he, get, he gets the kid's head out the window. And he throws up all down the side of this guy's truck. So he goes to a car wash to clean it off. Well, the smart move would be to take the drunk out of the car and lean him up against the wall and then wash your car. Well, this guy doesn't do that. He leaves the kid, the drunk kid in the car. And he <laughs> says, listen, um, if this happens again, I'm going to push your head out the window. I'm going to roll the window up and you're going to stay that way throughout the whole car wash. And he's like, no, man, I don't throw up twice. So... <laughs> 
you, now you now you've driven into the thing you've gone over the bump the green the red lights come on it says stop and the water starts spraying and things start happening and this kid starts to make the throw up sound again so true to his word the driver pushes his head out the window rolls it up so he can't retract his head back into the car and then the big spinning brushes get going and they wound up slicing one inch separated <laughs> strips into this kid's face on half of his face because he kept him there like the hot wax came out and the water and the spray and and so so that's and then he had to come to work Monday with half of his face. It looked like somebody took a red Sharpie and just a ruler and drew like straight lines across his face. <laughs> okay. So, so that's one of them. And then on the work side, I mean, I guess on that first ship, there's two parts to it. There's when we did go get the, the broken ship and take it home, you know, it was, we had so much to fix that when we slipped Norfolk, we got out of the buoy, did the roundabout we're in open water. And I think we launched 56, 55 casualty reports right then because <laughs> everything's broken right literally i mean literally the the military version of the gps died during seeing anchor detail <laughs> just went dead um anything i mean the there was multiple longitudinal stringers busted the the sea whiz was broken 76 millimeter hadn't fired in two years um you know just any number of structural things was wrong i mean nobody felt like we were going to drown or die or anything but just the boat was broken because it was on the decom list. Literally, we got to we got home on a Saturday or a Sunday. I think we got home. I think it was a Saturday, and the pier we landed at in Mayport was lined with guys, all the maintenance techs, with their handbags, and they just walked on board <laughs> and kept going. Started on Saturday, yep, yep. and so we literally our life became like, let's fix it and let's all work together and let's fix this thing. And we get underway, shake something out. Okay, that's broken. Go back in, fix it, get back underway again. Um, but it was that crew kind of coalesced the idea to me of this like small team that you would ride on the back of a garbage truck with and pick up garbage on a hot summer day because yeah. you didn't, it wasn't the work so much, but you liked the people you were doing it with. And that, that kind of got that concept going to me of like, you know, the, the officers, the second CEO we had onwards and the once the wardroom got right, you could have you could have asked us to peel potatoes all day, and I think we would have done it, and just because we 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 enjoyed it, and it it made us happy. So well, it, you it know. is super interesting yeah. that uh, the refit environment uh, is the term would be in the Navy. And I, I did a couple of shipyard tours. That is a super unique thing with the all of the contract entities and managing workflow and all that kind of thing. That's a that's a whole skill set in and of itself. Hence, I guess the, the EOD community, you know, is probably part of, part of that or the engineering duty, EDO, EDO community, engineering duty officer kind of community to manage that very large capital maintenance workflow sort of a thing. Is that the field that you got? I could see that being the field, but in this case, like we never went to a shipyard. Yeah. All this stuff was done pier side in Mayport. Like we fixed longitudinal stringers. We fixed the flight deck. We resurfaced the flight deck. We fixed the guns. We did all that stuff. So speaking of fixing the guns, it's one other funny one from, you know, so we had this gunner's <laughs> mate that just showed up. Like he knew he'd gone through a school shows up to the boat and he's, you know, a boot gunner's mate. Well, all of a sudden, you know, and these, these, this particular group had worked super hard 
on getting the 76 millimeter and the sea whiz back up and operational we've done a pack fires on both weapons and and they were working full tilt you know full back full back up to spec so one day we're on the frigate and all of a sudden, you know, they passed the word. We knew they, they passed the word. They're like, hey, assemble all hands on the O3 level and, and you know, assemble whatever division it was, the gunner's division. You know, assemble gunner's division in all hands for an award ceremony. Well, this kid was in that division. So he goes up and stands next to his buddy, shoulder to shoulder in front of the whole ship, wherever we can make it. And, and uh, the captain starts handing out Navy Achievement Medals to everybody. And for whatever reason, they had an extra one. And this kid had gotten there like two days ago. He didn't have done any of this work. And they're reading the citation and they're pinning medals on kids' chests. And the captain and the division officer and the chief are both like trying to wave him off. Like, no, sir, don't do that. <laughs> Throws the medal on this kid's chest. And afterwards, the captain's like, what were you guys so upset about? Like, what, what, what was going on? They're like, sir, petty officer so-and-so got here yesterday. He's like, ah, oh, crap. Well, you're find a way to on. make it legit, you know, moving on, find a way to make it legit. And so, I mean, there's, there's just little day-to-day -day things like that, but, you know, but the, the downfall of the, of the decommissioning thing though, was also that we got kind of told, Hey, listen, we're decommissioning the ship. So the enlisted detailers came down from Millington. They sat every body up. We had, a, we got a auditorium in Mayport we set up tables around the perimeters and people and their families came in and, and each sailor got to go sit down with their detailer and they'd be saying, Hey, based on your rank, based on your skill set, these are the jobs I can offer you. Which one do you want? Yeah. And they got to pick off the menu, but we didn't do that for the officers, which I thought was interesting. It mm -hmm. was, it was kind of like, okay, well you'll get orders. Great. You know, we had one guy who really wanted a cruiser and he didn't realize the cruiser he picked was out of Japan. <laughs> and he didn't really want to go to Japan. And the detailer was like, oh, heck, man, I've been, haven't filled that bill in forever. Finally got somebody who wants it. Yes. Cruiser. Hell yes, cruiser. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And then we had to tell this kid, we're like, hey, you realize that the ship you picked is out of Yakuska? And he's just like, no, it's not. No, no. Not I'm like, well. So he, he, he got out of it. But, it just... yeah. but then on the minesweeper side, I mean, so I met the ship on deployment. And that was the first time I ever had any real experience with EOD folks. I mean, I knew some EOD officers, and yeah. but the minesweeping EOD community at one time it had a very different relationship where EOD officers were the commanding officers and minesweepers, and they got away from that and went back to being a surface warfare gig. And then they were they had such a backlog at EOD school at the time. This was 2003 to 2005 timeframe. Um, so they were sending EOD guys that had done scuba school to minesweepers to stash them until they could open up EOD school slots. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting because they weren't traditional SWOs, but they were being treated like they were SWOs. And that didn't really go over so well. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of these guys, if you wanted to blow something up, jump out of an airplane or shoot something for you, they're really good at it. And I had some really good ones too, but I also had some ones that just paperwork just wasn't their thing. And to the point that one of the guys that later after he had gone to EOD school, he had, one of the guys on the minesweeper had been, had gotten married to a woman of a uh, Russian American woman who was, who had immigrated from Russia. She was a legal citizen. Her sister comes over to the wedding. So this guy who was waiting to go to EOD school falls for the sister. And uh, <laughs> she has not immigrated yet to the United States. She still lives in, in Russia. 
or what I guess I'll call it Russia. But um, so anyway, he goes to EOD school, graduates, gets his pin, goes out to get a, a detachment command in Guam. While he's out in Guam, he makes several trips to Russia, and then he oh, comes boy. back to the then he comes back to the <laughs> security office in Guam, goes up to a petty officer, and he's just like, "Hey, I got married. Do I have to file any paperwork?" And the petty officer is like, well, sir, if you married an American woman, no, you just tell us and we'll put it in your file. And that's that. And he's like, what if she's not American? And he's uh, like, well, it depends. You know, uh, who'd, who'd you marry, sir? And he's like, oh, I married a Russian. And they're like, OK, what do you do for a living? <laughs> um, yeah, not so much anymore. So ultimately, this kid yep. lost his designator, was dismissed from the Navy in such a way that he can never hold a security clearance again. Yikes. And, you know, it's just, it was an interesting story, but this is also the same guy that just great, great American, great dude, do anything for you, give you the shirt off his back. But he, like E6 evals were coming up for the guys that were going to go up for chief. Yep. And he worked, this guy worked for the chief engineer and he, you know, the chief engineer was a swell like me and had said, you know, Hey guys, you know, E6 evals are due. This is what I expect. This is what I need. And literally he would get back from this guy. Uh, he shows up for work on time. He's a good electrician and uh, he's an asset to the command. He'd get like three sentences. Right, right. And it's like, you're trying to get this guy promoted. Like there's a way you do this. So, I mean, there's some, I mean, the minesweeper life was interesting. It was very slow. It's the only time I'd ever ridden out a hurricane on a, on a boat in a medmore um, <laughs> just because they can't run from them. So they have yeah. a, a weird way they would rig them all together and, and uh and you know tie them up and hope for the best right. so yeah there was a there's a big plate in the seabed on the in naval station ingleside and you would run that through the bow and then they would tie four ships together and everybody would back down together and pull against that plate and then set up a medmore and then they would just basically be sprung between the 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 plate and the floor and then the the pier behind you and How many you could walk from ship to ship like just enough for a fire party yeah. And like a couple officers and the fire party. So good board. Like, <laughs> yeah. And like, you just, you have internet, you have power, you have food. So you're kind of like, well, you know, I, I lived in a little apartment by myself in town because my fiance, now my wife hadn't, she didn't move out there with me. So I was like, okay, you know, I don't have much stuff there anyway. So, but very, very cool. No, um, yeah. So, go ahead. No, no, that, that's that's kind of my sea life. Um, I did I did deployments to South America for counter drugs. Did a NATO deployment as part of the Standing Naval Task Force, and then I did the minesweeping deployment. So, I mean, I got to see parts of the world. I mean, I would have yeah. liked to have seen Africa, but that didn't come true. So, yeah. Well, uh, it sounds like uh, I don't I don't think we mentioned this while we we're on while we were recording. We we're doing it beforehand, but it sounds like you're going to get to do some travel uh, down to South America now, uh, which sounds really cool. But transitioning now from uh, your time in the service and you're still uh, in the reserves and all that, but your kind of active duty time in, in the military service into that into what you're doing now. Mentioned you're at uh, at the command there in the, in Key West, but what really intrigued me is you're doing something uh, on your own which uh, resonates with me because it's about project management and execution and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to give you a, a chance to sort of talk about how you started that business, why you're passionate about it and what you're looking to do, how you're looking to change the world 
around you or offer to, to help out businesses. So tell, tell me a little bit about your, your, your side business. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, I like to plan things. I'm compulsive in that way. I don't think I exactly have OCD, but I, I definitely have some, some quirks when it comes to, I like a plan. And when I joined the military and I kind of found the military planning process, I really felt like that was something that spoke to me. And since then I've learned a lot about that. And in the Navy, you know, we don't really teach planning the way the army and the Marine Corps teaches it to their young officers. Uh, I just think about my Navy time and you would get, those familiar with the Navy, you know, you get an op order and you knew the annex kilo was the communications portion and you pulled your section out and off you went. Um, but I, I never knew how the op order was built. I, I never knew how the, how the plan came to be. Uh, you just kind of got one on the ship and you went with it. When I got to Southcom in Miami, I saw how it was built and I saw the work that went into it. And it fascinated me. And then I got interested in Six Sigma and Lean and the, the project management institute or PMI's project management professional stuff. So recently I, recently I, I did all that and um, I finally got my PMP certification and I've, I've, I've kind of taken the military planning process and I've looked at it and I think it's a very valuable tool, but I, I think there's parts of it that are useful to the business community. And I think there's good pieces of six Sigma and lean six Sigma that are useful for the business community as well. But I don't think anybody's really um, put all that together into one cohesive package that takes the best parts of all of them and kind of jams them together to, uh, to basically make the better product for a, a business, a nonprofit, what have you. Um, so a quick question, quick question. Yeah. Were there some specific instances where you saw a need for this that really drove you to make it a business? Uh, was there like the counterpoint you looked at and said, Hey, I've got the solution for that. Yeah. So I, I guess I kind of did it a little bit, maybe backwards in the sense that I, I found this thing that I liked the planning and I was like, well, how can I make something out of this? So in trying to find, I guess you could call it a market fit per se. I, a buddy of mine that I've known for a lot of years owns a business where he teaches motorcycle dealerships, um, and boat dealerships and whatnot, how to sell better, how to be more efficient. And I was, we were both happened to be in, in London on work trips at the same time. And we were talking and we were over dinner and I was just like, Hey, do your, do the dealerships that you work with have a three to five year plan? Do they have metrics? And, and he's like, well, no, they don't have a plan. I mean, he's like, we build metrics for them in the business that he runs, but the, so I guess I got the kernel of the idea from that, that, you know, maybe there's a place for a three to five year plan with some implementation behind it. So that people, cause I had this perception that people out there were wanted more. And ultimately I bore this out through my buddy that I was like, Hey, listen, I need, can you maybe put me in touch with the guy who wants, who would be used, who would want to do this. And my first approach was to reach out to this business and say, Hey, I understand you want more than what you got now, but you know how to get there. And do you have a plan to get there? And ultimately they didn't. And so I was able to kind of work with this guy a little bit to say, Hey, what are the gaps and what are your problems and where do you want to go in three to five years? And how can we take what I think is a product 
and make it into something else that's useful to you. And it's a living document. It's not some dust gathering military plan that people might think about. Yeah. And it's, it's actually, it drives staff cohesion. It, and as I read more too, that's another part I, I, I noticed as I read more about the, mil, the current state of planning for businesses is that a lot of people don't know, well, like some re, academic researchers have found that, you know, something like over 60% of the people in a business that they, that they surveyed don't know the mission statement of the business. The strategy isn't often implemented right, or it's, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't tie back to the budget. So these are all things that I think the product that I'm trying to develop in the, in the, the system that I guess I would like to implement with, I think people could implement maybe to a, a better gain for themselves and their business could take the goodness that I've learned through the military planning process, as well as the other processes I've studied to to just basically, I guess my idea would be to 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 interview someone kind of like we're talking now and kind of get at what they want. And then I could go back and do a lot of the work and then refine it with them. And I'm also trying to make it in a way that you don't have to teach. You don't, I don't have to make somebody else a, a planner. I just, I, I want to pull stuff out of people and not overly tax them to the point that they don't, I, so that they can kind of see some good for it and then they can go and use it. And it's a useful document. Cause that's the problem that I think on the military side is we write plans because we have to, and, and they're very big and cumbersome and they're very wordy. And I just think you could almost apply the river runs through it approach of, as I call it, of, you know, very good, do it again, have as many words and, <laughs> and, and, and let's, you know, let's get down to the nitty gritty and, and, and not have a lot of fluff because it just, I that think, just wastes people's time. Sorry. I, I think that you've probably touched on it, but if you had to, uh, kind of coalesce that into a value statement or something like that. If I was a prospective client, what, what would you say to me is the output of you going through that process of applying military planning uh, to my business? What do you think I'm going to get out of it? That would be the thing say, Hey, that's, yeah, you're right. I need that. And let me get my checkbook out. Well, I, I, I think the thing that you would get out of it would be your staff would have a clear vision of where you want to go. Um, yeah. through the use of certain metrics and the way we, we could develop the metrics, your staff would have better buy-in because they're going to develop some of the metrics for their you know, departments or divisions that go towards your top line metric of mm -hmm. where you want them to go in that, that quarter. Another value proposition is that you get someone that you don't have to pay any of their, you just have to pay a, a monetary fee for it. You're not worried about keeping my training up, keeping my computer going. You, you, you're not taking on a new full-time employee. It's going to cost you way less than that. And ultimately other academic research has shown, I mean, while this isn't a huge number that, you know, businesses that do have this type of planning are about 10 to 12% more successful than those who don't. So, yep. you know, I, I guess this is very useful for the, now I'm not, I can't be all things to all people. So kind of deviating away from the value piece here, but, this is really for those people that want more. Like if you already have, and more could be a relative term, but if you already have, you know, three to four locations up and running and you're killing it every day and you're making money hand over fist, you probably don't need a guy like me. I'm looking for the business that's, that's basically saying, Hey, you know, I have a, like the guy I originally, I talked to about with the Colonel's idea work. His family at one point had seven motorcycle dealerships from Tallahassee to Jacksonville and then down almost to Gainesville, if you're familiar with Florida geography. And 
over time, the economy went down, some bad financial decisions were made, and they collapsed down to two dealerships, but they want to get back to seven. So that's the kind of guy I want to work with who, who realizes, like, I have a goal. I might not know how to implement it and achieve it, but that's where I can come in. Uh, let's sit down and let's figure out what's attainable, what's realistic, what's feasible within the time frame we're talking about. And then let's go put that to paper and also yeah. bring about the metrics that are, that would help track that. So, I mean, I, I think the value proposition, while it doesn't hundred percent speak for itself, I, I think it is something that can be, I think it can be pretty well translated in this case of, and also too, it's, it's not just for big businesses. I also think there's a misperception there that people think, Oh, strategic planning. And I don't really like the term strategic planning a ton, but it's, it's a term people understand, yeah. but you know, it's, it can be for every, I mean, even startups need it probably more than big businesses do. Cause when I'm you're, one month, I would almost them, say, I'd almost say that it's part of the definition of a startup or a small business that you don't have the bandwidth to look beyond the next quarter or maybe the next fiscal year, definitely. And if you've built a business that has given you even the, the barest of bandwidth to start looking beyond that, it would make all the sense in the world to have somebody who's smart and can plan come in and build that for you, right? Yeah, no, I would agree. And especially when I would tack on too to that, that especially when you're younger and you don't have a lot of spare capital, you're looking at every dollar. Every dollar means something. It's not, you're not a, a Johnson and Johnson to, for, for instance, that has, you know, or an Apple that has, you know, dollars in reserve and a lot of them that can go chase a flyer and, and see if it'll work. But right. you know, you, you, you have to go with sure things. And I mean, while I can't at the same time, I'm saying this will work for people. I can't guarantee success, but it wouldn't be for lack of a cohesive plan. And, right. and that's something that, you know, I watch, you watch TV shows and different things and you see how this, some businesses jump from this to that in a panic state of even some books I've read recently of, you know, bigger businesses that, that want to diversify and they jump into things they don't really know about. You know, it's that disciplined approach to say no to things and to follow with a vision of where you want to go and to, not jump at every opportunity that comes across your plate. So, I mean, some you should jump at and others you should study and then, and then go at, you know, I've yeah. been reading good to great by Jim Collins recently. And, and that's been one of the central themes is like, when you look at some of the case studies he presents in that book, it, it really echoes of this idea of measured caution, I guess I would call it to, to, to look at the options in front of you, but to make the best choice you can. So I had to have a couple of uh, follow-ups there on the thing, but what I was thinking of when, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were describing your vision of what help looks like is maybe a real value add that you can provide is not just a plan, because if you say to anybody who has a business or is working in a business, you can say, you need a plan. They'll say, yeah, I, I do need a plan. And maybe may or, I may or may not want to pay you to help me build that plan, but probably what is equally as difficult for people to visualize and have the discipline to do is a process to iterate off of that plan because nobody's original plan is going to work the way you planned it. So what we have in the military is some bandwidth and a discipline to iterate your plan and change it and implement real tangible revisions as you go. And I've not seen that be uh, so a component of the businesses that I've worked in. 
since I've retired. So just a thought there, the, the discipline of iteration off a of base plan. Yeah, and that's something that I guess in my my business model, I guess if, if I'm all cards on the table would be that we would wind up with going in, doing the initial interviews, building the base plan, and then we would have quarterly touch points with the yeah. business that we work with to say, here's the assessment of what we said we're going to do this quarter kind of against the larger plan. How does that look? Is it, you know, because we might have underestimated or overestimated in the metric so we could have great success or horrible failure, but we're going to learn and then do that every quarter. And I'm using quarters just because it's what I know from the military, but if people want a monthly assessment, we could do that too. But I worry about multiple course corrections coming too quick before you have that strategic pause to kind of see what's really going on. But whatever the time frame becomes, we'd have that. And then annually we would sit down and say, or it could even be semi-annually to sit down and say, okay, this is the plan we wrote. And especially during the first year where it's probably the most nerve wracking and probably the most important to say, you know, did we get it right? You know, and then having like, like you said, having that iterative look of, okay, well, this is, something in the environment changed and now we're really crushing it and we can actually make this goal bigger or smaller, or we can say we've fully accomplished that goal. So let's put a new one in place. So, and again, I really want what I'm doing to be a living thing. I I don't want to build stodgy, sit on the shelf, collect dust plans. The, The, what I'm advocating for is a living planning document that's useful to the user and the staff because the one Navy example that I would bring to it is I had a a skiffer on the minesweeper who had a mantra of, you know, uh, his his mantra was a common objective, a drive to drive to achieve it and clear communication. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he put that in place when he would explain things, everybody on the team knew why we were doing certain things, why certain evolutions were happening. And they might not have liked it. You know, they might not have really enjoyed doing it, but they knew, this is what's going on. This is how it impacts me. And this is what I get out of it. Or this is the value to me. Like I'll get more free time or we'll be underway. We'll be able to go to a port call. We'll be able to go to the range and shoot guns and do something fun. But they knew, the team knew what was going on and why. And I don't mm-hmm. tend to see that in other places. And I think people that, organizations that can give the why to the group, I think do a whole lot better than those that, that don't. Yeah, agree. definitely agree with that. Uh, be able to speak to a vision, uh, show how a vision is going to come to life, and then connect everybody to it. That's good stuff. The uh, What I have is uh, I have three kind of short answers questions, and we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. So I want to bust through those really quick as short answer questions. Okay, cool. And then want to drill home on uh, how people get in touch with you and you know if they have kind of business needs or want to learn more about your company, how they do that. But first, three quick kind of short answer questions is your system and your vision for how you execute planning. Is it tools based or is it coaching based? How would you, how would you see that? It's a little bit of both. It's coaching based in the sense that during the interviews that we would do while we were on site with somebody, we can give tips and tricks and procedures for kind of how to implement our system. And Mm -hmm. then the actual plan itself is I, I, I don't want to have anybody spend additional money beyond the fee to hire me. So I do it in word. We use Excel. So it's, it's, I try to make it as user-friendly as I can. And also I want to build something that these guys can, men and women can chuck into their new employee hire toolkits of, 
hey, when you onboard somebody, make sure they read this plan. So Makes sense. it's trying to keep it, you know, as I don't want to build some, I don't need to build some random, you know, software solution that you have to download and buy. <laughs> oh, come on. So, well, I mean, I could, but just, well, I mean, so, I uh, could, but I could bring in somebody who could, but. Yeah. Um, so uh, sort of distilling down why you would be a good choice here. What makes you good at this as opposed to if I was looking at some other consultant, what makes you good? Why are you the person I'd choose? Well, I think I'd be the person you would choose because I combined the real life experience of a person who didn't learn. I mean, it wasn't, hey, it sounds cliche, but planning wasn't given to me. I learned a Navy side of it. I learned an Army side of it through, the, through some school of hard knocks. And then I've gone out and gotten certification in PMP. And I think I've fused all that together. I don't see another group. Maybe they are. I haven't found them yet. Who's fusing together what I've done in the best of all these cafeteria style planning processes to give you one really good dish of planning that you yep. want to eat. I haven't found another group who's doing that. And I think I'm agile enough that I would take on what I could take on and I'm not going to ex extend myself beyond, I guess this is my you know hedgehog concept. It's simplistic in nature. I don't, I, mean, I don't plan on deviating from it. And I, I realize I'm not going to be all things to all people. This is what I want to be to the people that want to work with me. Yeah. And I, I tell you, we worked, even though we haven't stayed in super close contact uh, since we worked together, when we were working together, we were side by side for three months of fun in the sun in, uh, in what was it? Doral, Florida, right down the right. road from Trump's Doral golf course, right? And, yeah, it's all yeah. right across the street in certain respects. Exactly. So uh, that was what my impression of you was, is somebody who takes reality on reality's terms, uses what tools they have, puts together a strategic plan around it, and then says, okay, now it's time to go. And you start executing. That was just, so it makes all the sense in the world that you've started the business that you have here, here now. Well, I appreciate that. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess at like in the evenings and at night, I mean, I, in the weekends, I mean, I'm, there's still room and there's still yeah. room to have the work life balance and to be able to, you know, make some extra money and do some good things. And, you know, who knows, this could blossom. And I, I guess I just really like the idea of being able to, while I can't call the shots for somebody else, I can at least have control in a way that it's, it's my business and I, I can make it better and, and then do things with it in the best way I see fit. Vice having three people over me tell me yes or no. And, you know, right. do this, don't do that. Well, that's, that's the core of, I think, what the value you bring to the table is, is you have all of this experience and professional maturity and ability to execute, and you can come in on a fractional basis for people who can't afford a full-time employee to do that for them. You can come in and execute on that to that uh, level and, and give them that capability when they need to turn it on and off, right? Um, right. And that's, I mean, that's what we, the business model we've built is as a you know, a two site visit a year type business model, more is required, but two, two site visits and then quarterly touch points. And then it's done remotely, like you said, and it's, it's priced. I mean, price can obviously be negotiated, but it's something that would be like a set price for the year with a quarterly payment period. So, I mean, it's, I, I think even at some of the models I've messed around with, I mean, it's, it obviously depends on the business, but it's a, it's a quarterly payment for, you know, the work, but it's, 
you know, I, I, I think it's a reasonably priced product than some of the models I've, I've kicked around. I mean, I, it's kind of hard to find a parallel. I really can't pick up the phone and call like a Deloitte and Touche and say, Hey, what do you charge for this? You know, so, um, you could, you could call them that. Well, one. I could, I don't know what they'd say, but, or they would do what I do, but you know, um, and I mean, but then again, I don't have the overhead that other businesses have. Like I'm, right. I'm not, yeah, I have to pay quarterly taxes, but that's coming out of whatever I make, you know, so I'm not a lot of this stuff I already have. So, I mean, I have yeah. a computer and I have the knowledge and, and I'm maintaining my own certifications. So, you know, for a business, like you said, it's a lot cheaper than a full-time employee, you know, just yep. on the payroll taxes alone, it's cheaper, you know? So, so last question, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get wrapped up here is what is your five year, Mr. Mr. Planner guy, what is your five year plan? What is your, what is your vision long-term for uh, what you're doing? So, I mean, right now it's, I, I would say in the broad strokes, it's, um, my wife and I would like to leave Florida. Nothing again. I mean, I live here. I'm a Florida citizen all my life. So, I mean, part of it is honestly getting to a place where we have opportunity. And as the kids get older, they need to be in a little bit better school system with some more resources. So, and I need to, so part of it's going to be the move would be someplace else other than the lower keys. Uh, part of it would be growing my side of the business. Uh, my wife's fairly set. She's doing well. She has more hours. She actually works hourly right now in her contract. She works more than a 40 hour week. So, I mean, she's doing all right. Um, and then I would like to mature my, I mean, really it's to get them, make the move and then mature my side of the business to something that I can sustain and, you know, perhaps get additional certifications and, you know, Six Sigma or lean, or yep. I've also recently found a strategy group that does like strategic planning certification. So, I don't know, broadening myself and my, of my abilities and trying to stay true to my concept of not all things to all people. And, you know, ideally it would be best if I could learn a space, you know, if it's motorcycles or boats or vacuum cleaners, I don't know, but, you know, learn some particular area pretty well. So I could, I could have more street credit within a field than right now. Cause I, I, I don't have name recognition and I, within any field, I'm not like, Oh, that's John. Yeah. 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 I saw him at last year's conference. You need to talk to John. You know, I, I don't have that yet. So, and I'm, I'm slightly, I'm slightly afraid of the shotgun approach of, you know, working with just a hundred different groups. I'd almost rather work with 10, 10 clients in one space and get better at it. But that's going to have to come true over time. Excellent vision. And uh, I really respect you for being conservative in your approach and all that. And, uh, I've seen the, the, uh, the flip side of that where you, you jump all in on something and something doesn't work out and then things get a little tough on you. So I really, really appreciate uh, you taking those conservative, that conservative approach. And that actually supports your, your reputation and business because of your approach and, and how you're doing those. So fantastic interview. Uh, you may now hold the world's record for the longest Garrison project podcast ever, but it was all good stuff. And uh, thanks. Had a, had a great time discussing stuff and catching up. So tell us, uh, tell the audience if they want to reach out, if they're either interested in connecting to you for new business or interested in just connecting with you and, and, you know, sharing network and all that kind of stuff. How can people reach out and learn more about you? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can get me there at uh, John Kilgo, K-I-L-G-O. Uh, I think my dad's account still might be out there somewhere, but I don't know too many other John Kilgos. Um, <laughs> And then you can also get me via email. Uh, I'll spell it, parts of it, just to make it easier. But it's uh, 
john, J-O-H-N, at terralouconsulting.com. That's T-A-R-R-A-L-O-U consulting.com. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me is through LinkedIn or email. And I will be happy to respond to anybody and everybody who wants to chat. Fantastic, John. I appreciate it. Hang on the line uh, as I wrap up the show here. But everybody, thanks for tuning in uh, for this episode of the Garrison Project podcast. Uh, stay with us online at the www.thegarrisonproject.com. Reach out to me, Dan, at thegarrisonproject.com. We will catch you sometime soon. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to the Garrison Project podcast with Dan Edinger. Veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. Look for us on the web and social media, and please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for the support. Like us whenever you listen to our podcast, and stay tuned for more episodes.